This morning's reading is from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered because each one was speaking, was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking them, said, Oh, they are all filled with new wine. Quite the scene. That doesn't happen very often. <laughs> I mean, have you ever sat in a room and it sounds like a tornado is filling it? Maybe. Kids, have you ever been anywhere where suddenly there's fire that just hangs over someone's head? Ever? What if, what if this quarter of the, the sanctuary just started talking in different languages? You know, they're all Minnesotan, they all speak English, but suddenly they're speaking in French and German and Spanish, and you understand them. Like, this is not a normal scene, and yet there is incredible significance to it. It's a unique point in redemption history. This is actually Pentecost Sunday. It marks 50 days after Easter. And we don't, we don't have a lot of liturgical events on our, our church calendar at Grace. Um, we observe Easter. We observe the Advent season that leads up to Christmas. But we don't do a lot beyond that. Some denominations will observe lots of events on the, the church calendar, but that just hasn't been part of our, our tradition here at, at Grace Free. But as I've, I've thought and studied this week, it, it struck me that the events of Scripture, the God's church calendar, uh, it should inform our calendar more than it does. I don't exactly know what that looks like, um, Every year I'm aware that it's Pentecost, but there's always a, what do we actually do with it? Well, I had the chance to preach this morning, and it lined up with Pentecost Sunday, so I I wanted to think harder about it. Looking forward, I would love to see us think harder about the different events on the church calendar and orient our lives around the church calendar. Maybe that's a, a feast next year for Pentecost or something. But we have lots of events Man-made, you know, man-made things that we observe. How many weekends do we have a feast because it's Memorial Day or the Fourth of July? And those are fine. It's nothing wrong with those. Although some of the maybe newer holidays probably don't want to celebrate as much. 
But how much more should we think about how we arrange our calendars around God's calendar? Uh, if you want more information on the church calendar, I don't know if he's in here, David Omen knows a ton about the church calendar and is very passionate about it. And so if you want more information about other church markers on the calendar, uh, I'm sure he would be happy to talk more about that. Anyway, I wanted to at least mark Pentecost Sunday and preach on it. Uh, we'll actually spend this week and then Pastor Dave is out next week as well. And so we're going to continue in Acts 2 next week and look at Peter's sermon um, in further further detail. But this morning we're just looking at, at Pentecost. So in Acts 2 verses 1 through 13. And we say the word Pentecost, and that probably evokes a, a spectrum of, of different thoughts and memories and, and things that are tied to that word. It might evoke different responses from different people that are here. For some, you might think of the Pentecostal denomination within the church, where there's a heavy emphasis on speaking in tongues or even an overemphasis on the Holy Spirit at the expense of the Father and the Son. For some, hearing talk about speaking in tongues brings you back to a, a charismatic church you attended in the past, whether it's a good experience or a, a bad experience. For others, maybe it's, it's that time that you remember that the Holy Spirit is a, a vital part of the Godhead. Hopefully that's not the case for many of us, but we tend to under, underestimate the role of the Holy Spirit, and I hope that we correct some of that this morning. One theologian that I've, I've read and, and follow, he wants us to reclaim the word Pentecostal for all Orthodox Christians, not just a, a, a group within the church. And the focus shouldn't be our conviction on spiritual gifts and our position on that, but the reality that this is marking the time that the Holy Spirit fills believers for the work of the gospel. So that's my hope too this morning. I hope that we would all come away marveling more at the power of God through the Holy Spirit and being more motivated to carry out the Great Commission. So as we sit here on, on Pentecost Sunday, we're going to, to look in, in two sections here. Verses 1 through 4 describe what happened at Pentecost. And then the second section, verses 5 through 13, will pull out the significance of this event. So this, this unusual, wild scene with rushing wind and fire falling and people talking in different languages. That's the first half. But if we don't understand the significance, we haven't done our job. So we have to look at what is the significance of Pentecost? Why do we care? What does it mean? So that's how we'll, we'll break up the sermon. But before we do that, let's, let's ask the Holy Spirit to do what the Holy Spirit does to empower us to understand this passage and to apply it to our hearts. So would you pray with me? Lord of heaven and earth, we gather this morning expecting to hear from you. We thank you for your word that we can know you and what you require. Thank you for sending your son, the living word, who has revealed you to us. Thank you that your word really only makes sense when we know the son and his atoning work and his mighty reign. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit who works powerfully through men. He worked powerfully in the past to write your word and works powerfully through men now to preach it. So I ask that your spirit would make this sermon clear to our hearts 
Help us understand what you have to say to us this morning through this text. Holy Spirit, apply this passage to our hearts. That we would be strengthened for the week ahead. And it would lead us to greater acts of worship. Amen. Okay, so before we get to Pentecost and what Pentecost is, let's set the context a little bit. Let's look back at what the the festival of Pentecost was. In the Old Testament, it was one of the three annual festivals that Israel was to observe. The other two were Passover and the Feast of Booths. And in the Old Testament, Pentecost is, is called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of First Fruits. So it took place 50 days after Passover, or seven weeks. And it was also connected to the barley harvest. So that when they first um, harvested, they would gather to honor the Lord with their first fruits of their harvest. And Pentecost also coincided with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, which was probably 50 days after the very first Passover when they were rescued from Egypt and slavery. So it's a festival that's tied to several things. It's tied to their their farming season, and most notably their harvest. It helped people remember the Exodus, as well as through the giving of God's law, where they gathered at Sinai and God presented them with the law. And it also has a tight connection with the Passover. So what do they actually do? All the Israelites would gather to feast, Once they had taken the land, they would gather in Jerusalem. They would feast, they would offer sacrifice, and they would give thanks for God's provision. And this is what we see the disciples doing here in Acts 2. They've they've already been in Jerusalem, but now they're gathering to prepare to celebrate Pentecost. So one other piece here in the New Testament is that we see the Passover where Jesus is celebrating the Passover, which is connected to his death and ultimately his resurrection. But his death is now bringing new meaning to what the Passover was, where he is the ultimate Passover lamb who has taken away the sins of his people. And so now we're going to see how Pentecost combined with the Holy spirit takes on a new significant meaning for God's purposes in redemption. So they're both one-time events Taking, bringing new meaning to their this annual feasts that they would celebrate. And so it's a chance for us to look back and marvel at God's work as well. Secondly, we need to go back a chapter to Acts 1 to better understand what's about to happen in Acts 2. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he ministered and preached for 40 days, and he prepared his disciples for what was about to happen next. So If you turn to to chapter 1, look at verse 4. Jesus says, and Luke is writing, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Jesus ordering them not to depart from Jerusalem. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now. And I'm going to jump down to verse 7. Well, the the disciples asked, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. Jesus says earlier in, in one of his, his discourses that he would go away and the Holy Spirit would come. And now here he is again promising that the Holy Spirit would come and Jesus would depart. And Jesus even says, it's to your advantage that I go away, that the Holy Spirit would come. And so now here he is making this promise. It's, it's kind of Luke's version of the Great Commission that Matthew has in, in his gospel. He says, you'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. And the Holy Spirit will be the one that gives you the power to do that. And so the Holy Spirit's going to come with power. And that power, it's not just power for power's sake. There's a purpose to it. It would be power to fulfill the Great Commission, to witness to the ends of the earth. So that's the background. We have this festival, this feast that they're now going to to observe in Jerusalem. And keeping in mind that Jesus has promised what's going to happen. So we get to our our passage here in chapter 2. Verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So the disciples do what Jesus instructed them to do. They remain in Jerusalem, and as faithful Jews, they're preparing to celebrate this Feast of Weeks. So where exactly are they during Pentecost? So Acts 1, they're in the upper room. Jesus is instructing them, and then Peter even um, goes on to, to give a little talk. and It says that there's 120 People present in that room in in Acts 1. But by the end of Pentecost, by the end of basically chapter 2, there's over 3,000 people there. 3,000 people that ultimately get saved. What kind of setup is this? The upper room does not seem like it would be able to fit 3,000 people. So where are they? There's probably two theories on how this works. One is that they started in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes down, fills them, they're speaking, and then they make their way to the temple courtyard where other people see this happening and and assemble in the courtyard. Uh, The other is that they, they were in the temple courtyard to begin with. One way or the other, it seems that they end up in the temple courtyard where now there are thousands that are witnessing what is happening here. Either theory is trying to make sense of how many people could be in one spot. So we don't want to get hung up there, but at least explains some of the setting. So now, what is actually happening? Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So imagine you're sitting in your house or your living room, you're reading a book or maybe you're having dinner and something it sounds like there's a hurricane in your living room. It's the sound of power, like the power Jesus promised would come upon the disciples. Notice that it fills the entire house, similar to the way that God's glory filled the tabernacle and later the temple. But nothing else is taking up the space except God's presence. In the Old Testament, there's a similar description of of Ezekiel having a vision of God's glory. And he has a vision of the heavens opening and seeing God. And here's how he describes it. As I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually. And in the midst of the fire, as it were, gleaming metal. 
And Ezekiel goes on to describe this, this vision of different creatures and just another scene in scripture where you, you look at that and go, what is going on? These are incredible symbols and visions that they're seeing. So we see similarities in Ezekiel's account. There's stormy wind. There's this great cloud that's filling the, the place and fire. And they're all coming together to mark the presence of God. So the second part of this picture of the, the presence of God that is here in a significant way is this picture of fire. It's visible. It fell and rested over the heads of the disciples. And fire can represent a few things in the Bible. It can re- represent judgment and destruction. Like when the Bible speaks of burning up chaff or ultimately hell and the eternal fire. But it can also mean purification, like the purification of something valuable and lasting, like gold being refined by the fire and made better. But it can also show God's holiness and his presence. And in this case, it it's represents God's holy presence. This is especially clear when the two images, the sound of wind and sound of power with visible fire come together in the same scene. And they highlight the presence and the work of God. A further clue is that the sound, it says that the sound came from heaven. Throughout scripture, this is a theme where we see sound and wind and fire setting the stage for God's work, especially as it relates to redemption. Abram saw a flaming pot and a fiery torch passing through his sacrifices. And it was when God spoke, then God spoke to him and made covenantal promises to him and to his offspring. Moses encountered God's holiness in the form of a burning bush. Then after the Exodus, the Lord was present with Israel and led them by a pillar of fire. And later at Mount Sinai, which I mentioned a minute ago, Israel witnessed God's presence when God gave the law. So listen to this description from Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. These powerful descriptions of sound and visible fire and smoke describe the presence of God and his work. It was glorious and frightening at the same time. And this also points to the other side of God's holy presence. Judgment is part of his holiness. God's holiness is his perfect standard of righteousness. And we all fall short of that standard on our own. Maybe you've experienced this in in other places. Maybe you have a, a skill or a talent you thought was pretty good until you go up against better competition and you realize I'm not as good as I thought I was. 
when I was I was young, I played a lot of basketball. I'd play with my brothers, or I'd play with the neighborhood kids. And our neighborhood wasn't very big, so I was one of the better, maybe in the top three on my block, right? And then I would go up to the school and play against other people who were much better than me. And I realized my 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 understanding of being good at basketball fell way short of reality. So I'm going up against kids who are bigger, faster, more skilled. Maybe you've had a similar experience. Whatever it was, maybe you you have a, a hobby or your work or a skill. You thought you were excellent in it, only to realize you fall short when compared with others. How much more when a sinful people see God's fiery, glorious presence that it should cause them to tremble and realize that they should fall short of his holiness. So even in a glorious scene like the one at Pentecost, there's still an aspect of judgment here. You can see that in the the following passage where Peter is preaching. The people recognized that they had fallen short of God's standard. They were cut to the heart, realizing that they were sinners. So they realized that apart from Christ, apart from the mercy of God, they stood condemned. And the same goes for all of us here today. Apart from the work of Christ, apart from putting our faith in what he accomplished in his life, in his death, and his resurrection, apart from faith and repentance, turning away from our sin, all these glorious scenes, the one at Pentecost, the one in in the Old Testament, they only indict us before our holy God. So the call is simple. Repent and believe. If you have not put your faith in Christ, do it now. Talk to someone after. The final piece of this incredible scene is that the Holy Spirit fills these 120 disciples of Jesus. And they begin speaking in tongues. Look at verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. I already mentioned how the wind filled the entire room And now we see that the people themselves are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they immediately begin speaking in different tongues, which can simply mean different languages. And the main main point isn't the, the speaking in tongues. The main point is that the Holy Spirit came in power, just as Jesus and the prophets had promised. And the speaking in different languages is simply evidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Bible has more to say about speaking in tongues, and that's not really the the focus of this sermon. Paul addresses this uh, most obviously in in 1 Corinthians, for example. And there's lots of questions around the gift of tongues. What does it mean to speak in tongues? Are they a normal thing we should expect as Christians, or should we not? Were they merely used for a time in the early church and faded away? These are all questions we We should work through and discuss, but these are questions for another time, not the point of this sermon. But there's one thing I did want to address related to tongues that we see in this passage. Some Christians believe that speaking in tongues is a requirement as proof that you have the Holy Spirit. They see see the disciples here being filled with the Holy Spirit and then speaking in tongues and conclude that all Christians must have this experience. 
In other words, unless you've spoken in tongues, you should question whether you have the Holy Spirit. But that's just not true. So we must be careful not to take a narrative and turn it into doctrine. This is an extraordinary scene. Visible fire resting on people's heads. This is not the normal way of the Christian life. So we want to be very careful reading more into this and and settling on doctrine than we, we should. Now, back to what is clear. The Holy Spirit filled the disciples and they began speaking in different languages other than their native tongue which moves us to the the next part of the text where we can start to try and understand the meaning of this all. What is going on here? This is the the, the second point. Why Pentecost matters. It's one thing to see the events of Pentecost, focus on the unusual pieces, but we must understand the significance of God's signs and wonders. So as the crowd asks in this second section, we have to ask the same thing. What does this mean? It's one thing for the disciples to witness flaming fire and speaking in tongues. I mean, they had followed Jesus for years. They had seen similar scenes. But now this crowd arrives. That's another level. What, what do they understand? They've probably never seen anything like this before. So we'll look at three ways that the Holy Spirit coming on the disciples is significant. Why it matters. Number one, it's a reversal of the curse of Babel. Number two, it's the church's power for ministry. And number three, it ushers in the new covenant. So let's first look at how Pentecost undoes the curse of Babel. So let me give a quick summary of the curse. You're probably familiar with this story back in Genesis 11. It's the story of the Tower of Babel. And there's a lot of similarities and parallels between that account in Acts 2 and and Genesis 11. So we have this story of the whole earth, it says. The whole earth had one language, and they gathered at Shinar to build a tower to heaven. They had a common language and a common goal. The goal was to make a name for themselves. Because of their pride, then, the Lord sends them into confusion by giving them different languages. They can't understand each other now. And the Lord scatters them all over as a curse. Now look at the parallels with Acts 2. And how this curse gets reversed. Verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all those who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Verse 5 mentions this, that the God-fearing Jews at Pentecost, these ones that are now gathering, were from every nation under heaven. So to the known world, they represent that Roman and um, Middle East world. They're representing all nations, just like the, the nations in Genesis 11. And they all have different languages. When they hear the 120 speaking in different languages, at first they're bewildered or confused. Exactly how Babel wound up. Confusion. Why are they confused? Because they could hear them in their own language. Again, the opposite of Babel. The result that Babel was confusion because no one could understand the other. 
Now they're confused because they can understand each other. And while the men at Babel were trying to go from earth to heaven, now the Holy Spirit has come from heaven to earth. God's purpose is and was to dwell with man. But it has to be according to God's purpose, not man's. We cannot ascend on our own terms like the men of Babel tried. But we must depend on God to descend to dwell with us. So in descending, the Holy Spirit reverses that curse and fills the people with a new purpose and unity. So they're all now working together again. And instead of working for their own glory or for our own glory, like the people at Babel, the Holy Spirit fills people with a new mission for God's glory. So instead of trying to consolidate in one place like Babel, the purpose of the church is to disperse into all the world. We're commissioned to be witnesses to Christ and go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And this purpose, this great commission brings us to the second reason that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came to be that we would be witnesses to the mighty works of God. As the Jews hear the disciples and understand what they're saying, what exactly are they saying? They're telling the mighty works of God. We see that in verse 11. Now, it it's, would be pretty cool to hear a bunch of people speaking in a language you miraculously understand. But what exactly is the point of that? It's because the disciples are telling of the mighty works of God. As Jesus said in Acts 1, you will be my witnesses. And now we see a picture of that. The disciples are witnessing of what God has done, including and especially the works of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, this is the purpose of ministry, that the mighty works of God would be known and God alone would get the glory. That's worship. That's discipleship. That's missions. We're called to be witnesses to God's glory. Now, you probably, I doubt, you'll speak in tongues this week in front of 3,000 people. But what in your life would make someone else ask, what's the meaning of this? What things in your life would others see that point to the mighty works of God that they think might be strange, but that opens the door to talk of God's glory? Maybe it's a simple fact that you have five kids and enjoy being around them. That is increasingly strange in this world. So use it as a chance. Talk more about God's work in your life and how he designed the family to work. Maybe it's taking a different job because it frees you up for doing ministry more. An unbeliever might wonder why someone would ever do that. Maybe you're an empty nester who instead of coasting into retirement, you're spending more time pouring into the younger families of grace. Why would someone do that? Maybe it's simply able to handle hard things while seeing God's goodness and strength in it. Someone looks at that and says, I don't understand how someone could endure that. Use that as an opportunity to share about God's glory and his mighty works in your life. So the Holy Spirit fills us, fills all believers for the power for ministry. This isn't just for certain people. We're all called 
to share the gospel with people around us, to minister to one another, to help in the work of making disciples. That might look like teaching or learning about scripture. It might be leading a ministry or simply meeting with someone else informally. It might be praying for the saints in the church or serving one another with meals and, and tangible help. We're all called to ministry. Some of us, like elders and deacons, have a formal office where we focus more particularly on certain ministries. Others, like our ministries, are called to a particular place to do ministry. But all Christians are called to ministry. Because all Christians have the Holy Spirit who empowers us for ministry. And there's a number of different ways that ministry is accomplished. But the Holy Spirit is always the power for it. Grace Church, we need the Holy Spirit to share the gospel, the gospel with others and to love our neighbors well. This is not only an individual commission. We're called as a church to go and make disciples. Kids, hear this too. You're not excluded from going and telling the mighty works of God. Many of you have already been baptized. That means you are professing that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you. That means you have the power of the Holy Spirit to do ministry. Ask your parents, ask one of the elders, what kind of ways could you begin to do ministry? And it encourages me that a lot of you already are and have understood the call to ministry. But ask your parents about that. For all of us, ask yourself a couple questions. What does this look like in my life? How do I help further the Great Commission? Where am I ministering now? What areas do I need to press into more? What does this look like in your family? How are you telling the mighty works of God among your family and raising your children up to be disciples? What areas do I need to press into more in my family? And what does this look like in our church as a collective body? Ask yourself, where am I ministering now? What areas do I need to press into more? Where do we as a church need to press into more? There is a lot of ministry that happens. There is a lot of discipleship that happens. But we don't have everything figured out. Where are we missing it? What do we need to push into more? Where do we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us? I'm the pastor of discipleship. I have the honor of working a lot with ministry and, and thinking through those things, but I don't have all the answers. So we, I'm encouraging you, join me, ask the Holy Spirit, ask one another, where do we need to press in more as a church? Number three, the third way that, that Pentecost matters, that the coming of the Holy Spirit matters, that we receive the new wine of the new covenant. Look at verse 12. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Some mocked this amazing scene and try and explain it away, thinking the the disciples were drunk. There's got to be a reasonable, rational explanation for this. We need to be careful that even as Christians that we don't want to explain away supernatural things and try and find the natural explanation, the rational explanation. 
So these mockers ask, well, maybe they're drunk. Maybe that solves all of this weirdness. But Peter, in his, his speech, immediately refutes that. He says they're not drunk. But in a bit of irony, he, he doesn't say they're not filled with new wine. Because they were filled with new wine, the wine of the new covenant. At the Last Supper, Jesus said this cup poured out is the new covenant. And the coming of the Holy Spirit is the seal of this new covenant. So we have new wine. We have a better covenant. God works through covenants. He makes promises with conditions to his people. And it all begins with faith that God will do what he has promised. If you trust the Lord and obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, there are curses. When Israel was under the old covenant and they were unable to keep their end of the covenant, they were cursed and sent into exile. And while in in exile, the prophets spoke of a new and better covenant that God would make. So we see, for example, in Ezekiel 36, the promises of this new covenant and what it will entail. Ezekiel says, promising the, the new covenant, I will speak clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God promised he would wash his people clean. He would give them new hearts. He would remove the heart of stone that we were all born with and replace it with a heart of flesh, a new living heart. And on top of that, he would send his spirit to dwell in the new heart of flesh. And it's through that power of the Holy Spirit that he would cause his people to actually obey. We have the ability to obey God's commands through the power of the Holy Spirit. We see this power in the new covenant. When we believe in the promises of God, we will be made clean through the cross of Christ. And then we will receive the Holy Spirit who will dwell with us forever. And through that, we're brought into the covenant people of God for the purpose of enlarging the covenant people of God that we are sent out. And this covenant will go out to the whole world. All nations will be brought into the covenant. And again, we see this reversal of Babylon, where we see unity, where there was division. And while we don't have one universal Christian language, the thing that unites us is the word of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings this bond between all people who have faith in the gospel and who have the Holy Spirit. So in conclusion, we return to our original questions. What is Pentecost? Why does it matter? What started as a yearly uh, observation, observance, a yearly observance of a harvest festival and the giving of the law is now changed into a momentous event where the Holy Spirit fills the church with power for a harvest of souls and a new way to remember the law. The new covenant writes the law on our hearts. Pentecost marks that day 
that the Holy Spirit came to dwell in the hearts of God's people, to undo the curse of Babel, to empower the church for ministry, and usher in the new covenant. This is the moment that the Holy Spirit came down to the church with power. Power to undo curses, power to do ministry, power to live in the new covenant. God's presence and power dwelt in the tabernacle and a temple in the Old Testament. He still dwells in a temple. Only now that temple is us, the people of God. The Holy Spirit was incredibly, the coming of the Holy Spirit was incredibly important. And Jesus said so himself. I wanted to read a quote by pastor and and writer John Stott about the importance of the Holy Spirit coming. He says, without the Holy Spirit, Christian discipleship would be inconceivable, even impossible. There can be no life without the life giver, no understanding without the spirit of truth, no fellowship without the unity of the spirit, no Christ likeness of character apart from his fruit and no effective witness without his power. And then he brings it home. A body without breath is a corpse. So the church without the spirit is dead. Without the Holy Spirit, the church is dead. Think about that. If we want to see the church grow, if we want to see the church expand and see this world come from death to life, we need the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray that the Lord would continue to fill us with the Holy Spirit and empower us to bring his mighty works to the world.